welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I am glad to welcome my youngest son to our ministry team. Josh is one of the teaching pastors at Summit Church in Naples, Florida. Now take your Bibles and let's listen to God's Word together. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Josh Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here at the Naples campus, and the great joy to be able to preach God's Word with you today, but also, as Michael mentioned, to open up a new series um, that we'll be starting this summer. Um, If you've been to Summit for a while, it's no surprise that this summer we'll be in the Book of Psalms. We seem to do that most summers. Um, But the angle that we're going to take is we're going to focus on the postures of the people of God. And what a posture is, is an attitude of the heart. And so as we approach God, as we embrace Him, as we come to Him, um, what, what posture should we have? And we're going to talk about different ones like repentance and humility and trust and things of that nature. And what we're going to talk about today is the posture um, of thirsting or longing for the Lord. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalms chapter 42 today. Um, that's the psalm that we're going to use in order to bring out this concept of what does it look like for you and I to long and to thirst after the Lord, to embrace Him for who He is, for His glory, to worship Him but also for our good and for our sanctification. And so Psalm 42, most of you probably are very familiar with this psalm. There have been songs written about it. Um, and also, it's, what's interesting about it is it's written by someone um, known as the Sons of Korah, an individual who is one of the sons of Korah. And before we read the psalm, I actually want to just talk a little bit about that because I even think the author of this psalm, here in the background of it, can even minister to some of you in this room this morning. So if you know who Korah is, if you remember in Numbers chapter 16, Korah was not a very good guy. Um, What Korah did is he was under the leadership of Moses, and he, along with 249 other people, went and they rebelled against Moses. And they rebelled against God and his authority, and they tried to overthrow it. And because of the acts of Korah, because of his rebellion against God, God actually opened up the earth and swallowed Korah as well as the other 249 individuals who tried to rebel against God. And so to be known as a son of Korah was not a good thing, right? There was a lot of shame, a lot of baggage, a lot of guilt that came from being associated with this individual. And I think for some of you in this room is that you find yourself in a very similar situation, that you come from from a family, you come from grandparents, from your ancestors who have made some really poor decisions. And often if, you're not, if we're not careful, we can allow the sins of our fathers, of our siblings, of our family members to kind of define who we are. And we feel the shame and the guilt of that as we walk around this life. And what this psalm reminds us of is God doesn't hold us responsible for the sins of our parents or grandparents or the people within our family. That he used one of the sons of Korah to write a God-inspiring psalm, right? It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed out by God. And so if you have some weight today, some shame and guilt, and know that your God doesn't define you by your family and by their decisions. He defines you by who you are in Christ Jesus. And he wants to use you to do great and awesome things, just like he does the son of Korah here. So take heart today if you can resonate with that. And so let's read what it says, Psalm chapter 42. It's only 11 verses, and so we'll read all of it. It says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. What they say to me all the day long, where is your God? 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I will go with the throng and lead them in percussion to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan, of Hermon, from the Mount Mazar. Deep cause to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. What they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's just open up in a word of prayer before we dive in to the Psalms together. Lord, we're so thankful for this morning. We're so thankful that you're a God that saves and redeems. We're so thankful that you're a God that desires to use us and you define us not by our by what our family does, not by what our ancestors do, but not even what we do, Lord. If we're in Christ Jesus, we are defined by the redeeming, forgiving name of Jesus. That is who we are because of your amazing work on the cross. I pray this morning, Lord, as we examine this psalm, that you would minister to the hearts and the souls of the people that are in this room. They are here, God, because you desire for them to be here. You worked it in their life and orchestrated it in such a way that you desire for your spirit to speak to them this morning through your word. So spirit, move in a mighty way. I am a weak individual. I'm a clay pot. I bring nothing to the table, Lord, but you, Lord, you bring everything. So work in my weakness. Work, Lord, in a mighty way for your glory and for the edification of your people. I thank you, Lord, that we're not the only gospel-centered church this morning. We have other churches that we can lock arms with, Lord. I pray that you would be with them for those churches who preach Christ crucified, churches like First Baptist Naples, First Presbyterian Bonita, Turning Point, Covenant Church, Compass Church, God, Faith Bible, and the many others in this area. God, work in the hearts and the souls of your people this morning in those congregations. Build your church, God, and do it in an awesome way to reach the lost and to grow those who are in you here in Southwest Florida. We love you, Lord. We desire for you to speak to us today. Your servants are listening. And it's in the awesome, powerful, gracious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. And so as most of us know, June is around, which means it is summertime. And what's awesome about summer is school's out, right? Our kids got out this week in Lee Collar County. And as most kids, I love the summertime, right? It's an opportunity to hang out with friends more, to go to the pool, to go to the beach, just enjoy some free time. But at the end of every summer, when I got older and got into high school, there was something that I dreaded more than anything else. And it always happened at the end of July. And it was something called two-a-day practices in football. And so you would start the se- get ready for the fall season in the end of July, and you would do something called two-a-days. That's how you would start the year. And what two-a-days were is that you mean you had two practices in one day. I actually think they've outlawed this. I don't think they do two-a-days anymore. 
because it was absolutely miserable, right? So it was, I grew up in the Southeast, so just like here in Florida, it was scorching hot at the end of July, and you had to show up two times in one day, fully padded, right? Everything on, going full speed. I even think it was a way for the coaches to kind of weed out the people who weren't serious about the sport. And so as you would go through this hard and, man, trying time in two days, it was always get to a point within your practices, whether it's the morning or the night, that you'd get so hot, that you'd get so exhausted, that your mouth would become dry, that you, at the point in practice, the only thing you could care about was to get a drink of water. That's all that mattered, right? The drills didn't matter. What you were, the plays you were going through didn't matter. You were so exhausted of heat, you just longed for water more than you longed for anything else. And it was kind of frowned upon where I went to school to ask for water. It was a sign of weakness, I guess. And so what you would do is you would have to wait for them to do the water breaks for the entire team. And I remember specifically as I was practicing where my, my, my um, position was looking, it was right here. And we had this giant water tank that held 35 gallons of water. And I remember getting to the point that I'm so worn out that I'm just longing for this water, just looking at it, waiting for the coach to blow his whistle so I could go and quench my thirst, so I could be refreshed by this water. And finally, right, certain times during practice, he would blow that whistle and we would crawl over there, right, to, the, to get that, to receive that refreshment because we were man, in great despair because of the heat and the exhaustion of the weather. And you probably, maybe some of you in this room did the two-a-day practices, but I think all of us in this room, you can resonate with a time in your life that you longed and thirst for water more than you did anything else, right? Maybe you played other sports and it got in the middle of the heat of the practice or the game, that you're like, man, I need water desperately right now. Maybe you're playing outside as a kid or gardening or doing something that you thought, man, I have to drop what I'm doing to get water. This is the only thing that I can think about and that I need at this moment, Right? I know we have some big athletes in here that do Ironman and triathlons and things like that. And you get to a point there when you're practicing and you're like, I need water right now. It's all that I need. It's all that I can think about. And in those moments, right, when we're desperate for something, when our body is telling us you need to be hydrated, right, we long for this water and trusting, confident that if we can get to the water, right, if we can receive it, then our thirst will be quenched. Then we'll be refreshed in that moment. So all of us can relate to that in a physical sense. And as we get to Psalm 42, we see that the psalmist has experienced spiritual despair. He's experiencing spiritual dehydration. And in the moment of his weakness and his despair, the psalmist, one of the sons of Korah, desires for the Lord to meet him with his presence. It's all that he can think about in that moment. If I can just get the presence of the Lord, then everything would be okay. We don't know a lot about the background of Psalm 42, but what it seems is happening is the writer is in exile. He is separated from God, and he's separated from the city of Jerusalem, and he's longing to be back in Jerusalem, and being in Jerusalem, meaning being in the presence of God. And so he's longing, desiring to be back there, thirsting for it, in the same way that he compares as a deer pants for streams of water. We kind of see the big idea to summarize this passage or this psalm in one sentence is this, is that we can thirst for the Lord in our moments of despair because he is our hope and our salvation. That just like we can long for water in our moments of physical despair, we can long for the Lord in our moments of despair and he 
We can be confident that he will quench our thirst with his presence. That's what we're going to do is we're going to kind of break up the psalm into kind of three different sections today, three moods that we see that the psalmist is dealing with. We're going to look at the despair that he's experienced. Then we're going to look at the longing that he has. And then lastly, we're going to see the hope that the psalmist has as he longs for the Lord in the midst of his despair. And so what we're going to do is take the verses that associate with each one of these, the ones that talk about despair, longing, and hope. And so we're going to kind of go a little bit out of order within the psalm. Uh, But the the, uh, verses are going to be up on the screen of what area we're looking at so you can see and we can read it together. So first, let's examine the despair that the psalmist has experienced. And the despair we can see here is, is my circumstances are overwhelming and defeating. So the verses we're going to read are verse 3, verse 7, and verse 9 and 10. Listen to these, man, these words of overwhelming despair and defeat. The psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night. Where they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, where they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And so this psalmist finds himself in exile, and while he's in exile, man, he's being put through the ringer. He says that his tears have been his food day and night. That he's crying, he's mourning, he says, on crying so much that day and night it feels like the tears that are streaming from his eyes have become his food. He talks about the adversaries that are around him, his enemies that are taunting him. And they're saying to him in his moment of exile, right, where's your God? The God that you serve is supposed to be all-knowing and all-powerful. Where is he in this moment? He even emphasizes this twice, right? And he's trying to underline it to us. This is what's happening in my life. My enemies are coming to me. They're taunting me. They're questioning, where's my God? Because it seems like he is nowhere to be found. He even compares his circumstances to waves crashing down on him in the ocean. He's overwhelmed with what's going on in his, his life right now, with this situation that it seems as if waves are just beating down him over and over again. He talks about being forgotten by God. It seems like God isn't here, right? They're questioning where God is. He's questioning, God, have you forgotten me? Where are you in this moment? And we see the great despair that the psalmist has experienced as an exiled, removed from the city that he calls home. And I think for you and I in our own lives, right? Can't we too feel this way? I mean, doesn't Peter remind us in 1 Peter that you and I are sojourners and exiles, right? Meaning that this world is not ultimately our home, right? For those who are in Christ, heaven is our ultimate home. And so what do we do? We wander this world as exiles. And often we find ourselves in the hardships of this life. We experience the pain of living in a sinful world, the devastations. We experience the consequences of our own sin and and the temptations that seem overwhelming at times that we find ourselves dealing with the hardships of living in a fallen and broken world. And maybe you today are just like the psalmist that you have been crying and weeping because of what's been going on in your life 
or in the life of the people that you love. Your tears have been your food day and night because of the brokenness in your life and in this world. Maybe you too have adversaries, enemies, coworkers, friends, people around you that are looking at you as they see all that is going on in the culture around us and they say, where is your God right now? Because it's, you tell me he's all powerful, right? You tell me that he's all knowing, but where is he in this moment? Right? Where was he when that 18 year old walked into a school and shot all the fourth graders? Where was he when a a guy walked into a convenience store and shot it up and killed people because of the color of their skin? Right? Where is your God when wars, pointless wars break out overseas and tens and thousands of people are dying, right? Where is he? And maybe you too, as you look to the culture around us, you've thought the same thing. Man, God, where are you right now? Maybe you too feel like you've been forgotten by God. You pray and your prayers seem to be hitting the roof and coming right back because God seems to be silent in these moments, saying nothing, doing nothing. And you too are overwhelmed with your circumstances. The waves are crashing down on you. You're overwhelmed with the state of your marriage. You're overwhelmed with the state of your family. You're overwhelmed with your finances. You're overwhelmed with the sins that you continue to commit, even though you fight so hard not to, that you're overwhelmed in your life with all that is going on. And you too can can relate to all of what the psalmist is saying here. You feel overwhelmed and defeated by the despair that you're experiencing in your life. Because despair is real. It's all around us. And there seems to be nothing we can do about it. And so the question I often ask myself and ask others is, how do you respond in your moments of despair? When you find yourself overwhelmed about all that is going on, defeated of what life is like, how do you respond? I think there's some natural ways that each of us can respond in those moments. I think for some of us, it's natural for us to hide, right? We just hide. We pull back, we withdraw, we hide in our rooms, we hide in our homes, we hide from other people, we hide from God. At least we think we can, right? We just hide. We just pull back. No one's going to see me. I'm too overwhelmed. We shut down because all around us is too hard. We, don't, we feel hopeless and helpless. For others, I think we become bitter at God because we do know that he's all-powerful. We do know that he's all-knowing. We get bitter that he's not answering the, our questions. We get bitter that he's not doing the things that we want him to do. So we wring our fist at God and say, I'm going to live in bitterness and angry anger towards God because he is making me go through all of this. I think for others of us, we find ourselves running to the things of this world, Right? If God isn't going to do what I want him to, then I'm going to run to sin. I'm going to run to the world's comfort. I'm going to run to it full steam, dive into it, just find my comfort and my joy in something that this world has to offer. I think another natural thing that is my tendency in moments of despair, what I'm tempted to do, is I just try to numb myself. I try to go off to something that that is different than what I have to deal with. Right? I go dive into sports, I watch movies, I get into TV shows, right? I I remove myself. I live in another world, so to say, for a moment, and I just numb myself from all that is going on. 
And often people can do that and even can go to extremes like drugs and alcohol to numb themselves and not having to deal with all the despair. They're overwhelmed and they're defeated. You find yourself in your moments of despair going to one of these natural things because you don't know what else to do. Even though to to do these things I think are natural, is that the best way? Is that what we should be doing in our moments of despair? Is there a better option? Man, praise God for the Psalm 42 because God tells us that even though we have natural things that we can do, he offers something that's greater. He offers something that is better. And he actually gives us an opportunity in the moments of despair to run and to long for him. See, it's interesting because we always need water, right? We need it to survive. Daily, we need to be drinking water or we will not survive. Yet, it's only in those really hard moments that we realize our desperate need for water, right? It's in the middle of that practice, right? It's when things, when we're hot and overheated that our body tells us, you need water. And then we see more clearly, it's exposed our need for water more greatly. But we always need it. It's the same thing with the presence of God. We always need the presence of God in our lives. But what God will do is bring despair in our lives to expose our need for him more greatly. So we'll run and long to him. See, in your despair, God isn't pushing you away. Instead, he's drawing you in as an opportunity to run to him. And so in our moments of despair, this is an invitation for us to long and to thirst for the presence of God because what we need in our hardest circumstances is we need the Lord. We need him in our lives. And the psalmist reminds us of that. We see the next thing here, the longing. The psalmist says, I thirst for the presence of the Lord. Let's read verses one and two again. It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where shall I come and appear before him? When the psalmist is overwhelmed and feel defeated, when he's in despair, his eyes lock upon the Lord. He knows what he needs in this time more than he needs anything else is he needs the presence of God. He needs to be encountered with the living God, the way he calls him. He even asks the question, where can I go to appear before your presence? Lord, you are what I need. My soul longs for you. I I thirst for you because in your presence, in my hardships, in my trials, it's in you alone that I can receive satisfaction. It's in your presence alone, God, that I can receive your mercy and your grace. It's in your, your presence alone that I can have the strength to move on and continue. It's in your presence alone that I can be wiped clean of my sins, forgiven for all that I've done. You are what I need. I'm overwhelmed. Lord, meet me with your presence. I long for it. I desire it more than anything else. And just like a deer's eyes are set on that streams of flowing water when he's parched. Just like that football player is longing for that 35-gallon tank of water in the midst of the hardships of his practice, in the same way in our despair, we are called and invited to long after the presence of our God who will meet us in our moments of despair. Our heart posture, Lord, I need you 
more than I need anything else in my life right now. The psalmist in Psalm 42 talks about as a, as a deer longs for water. But I think another helpful illustration that actually Billy Graham, pastor evangelist that most of you know of, talks about longing for God. And look at the word picture he gives of what it means to desperately long for the Lord. This is what Billy says. He says, have you ever been underwater for a period of time that is longer than you had expected? You know, as the time ticks away, how desperate you become to reach the surface and breathe the air. The greater the time you're underwater, the more you long for a breath of air until that desire overwhelms you. And you rush to get to the surface as rapidly as possible. You have no other thoughts but quenching your need for air, right? I think all of us have been there, right? Probably as a kid, right? That you were swimming with people, they pushed you under in that panic mode that you're like, all I need right now is a breath and you fight and you do everything you can because you know the only thing that will quench what you need in that moment is a breath of air. So you fight, you long, it's all you can think about in that moment. And Billy goes on to say, that is what it means to long for God. God wants you to long for him because it is in that longing that you are fulfilled and overwhelmed by God and the reflection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our lives. We are never more fulfilled than when our longing for God is met by his presence in our lives. To long for the Lord means that you recognize he is all that you need in that moment. More than you need God to change your circumstances, you need his presence. More than you need for him to give you an easier life, you need his presence. More than you need for him to answer all of your questions, you need his presence. More than any of that. You can pray for all those things to happen, and that's okay. But really what we need is we need the presence of God to quench our thirst, to satisfy us, to give us his grace, his mercy, his strength, to overwhelm us with his forgiveness. That is what we need in our moments of despair. And so as you think about your own life, when was the last time you longed for the presence of God more than you longed for anything else? When was the last time you said, Lord, more than I need you to change whatever's happening, I just need you right now. I need your presence. When was the last time you thought, if I don't receive the presence of God in this moment, I'm going to die. I'm going to die unless God shows up. I need him more than I need anything else. He alone can quench my thirst. He alone can meet me in my overwhelming, defeating despair. As we think about longing for the Lord, it's a heart posture. It's an attitude of our heart that starts there, longing for the Lord. I often think we wonder, what exactly does that look like, right? When a practical sense, very tangibly, what does it mean to long for the Lord, right? How can you posture yourself in such a way? It starts with your heart, but what things can you do to enter into the presence of God, right? He says that. How can I peer before your presence? The psalmist cries out. Well, often I think we don't realize how simple it actually is. Think about your own life. If you long for the presence of somebody, what are you going to do? If I long to be with my wife, to be in her presence, what am I going to do? I'm going to go and I'm going to sit with her. I'm going to talk with her and I'm going to allow for her to talk and to speak to me. 
I'm going to fellowship with her and I'm going to grow in my relationship with her. And it's very similar when it comes to our becoming before the presence of God. It means that we talk to him and it means that we allow for him to speak to us. And when he does, we worship him and praise him for who he is and what he reveals to us. And so what does it mean to talk to God and have him talk to you? I mean, I talk to my kids before we have Bible studies, family devotions. I sit with them and two questions I ask them. I say, what does it look like for you or how do you talk to God? And they say, through prayer. And I say, great. And how does God talk to you? They say, through his word. And that's it. That's what it means. It means that we talk to God through prayer. It means that we take time to come before God and we pray to him, that we cry out to him. That we, that we come before him and we speak what we, what we desire to speak to him. That we come before him and we lift up our words to him in our moments of hardships. That we tell him all that is going on. He already knows what's going on, but he desires to hear it from his children. We cry to him and we believe what it says in Psalm chapter 18, verse 6. When it says, in my, dispre- in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. We trust that our prayers aren't just bouncing off the wall. We trust and believe that when we pray before the Lord, that he hears us. That when we cry for help, that our God hears what we're saying. That he goes and it, it gets into his ears. He knows what his children say. And so we cry to him. We say, Lord, listen, please. And we trust that he does. And we speak to him through prayer. And then we listen. And we allow for him to speak to us through his word. That when we come before the word of God and we read it, we meditate on it, we have the same posture that Samuel had when he heard the voice of the Lord in the night, right? What was he instructed to do? When you hear the voice of God, say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And so we say, speak, God, I'm listening. And we read God's word. We, we meditate on God's word and we say, Lord, speak to me in my moment of despair. I long to be in your presence. What I need is to hear from you more than I need anything else. And then as God speaks, right, we worship and praise him. That he's a God that speaks to us and allows for us to speak to him. And we do that in our personal time. And then we gather here on Sunday mornings, right, with other believers. And we worship God through song. And we hear the preaching of his word and ask that he would speak, the spirit would speak through then. And then we gather with other believers and Bible studies and community groups. And we say, Lord, speak to me through my brother and my sister, right? Allow them to remind me of what your word says. Allow for them to point me to Jesus. And we allow for the spirit to use them according to what God's word says to minister and to speak to us. And we run to the Lord in our moments of despair, not away from him, not hiding, not numbing ourselves. We long for him more than we long for anything else. So what does it look like for you? What steps can you take to practically get to a point that your heart longs to know God? Maybe you need to pray, Lord, give me the desire to long for you more than I long for anything else. And what does it look like for you to position yourself to to pray to God and then for him to speak to you through his word? What does it look like for you in your own life to do that? And you might be asking the question as you hear that, what if I long for the Lord and what if he doesn't satisfy? What if I long for the Lord and he pushes me away? What if I long for the Lord and he changes his mind? Can he really be trusted in my despair and in my hardships, 
Man, praise God, the psalmist reminds us that he can be. And the last and final thing that we see here is that you and I, that we can have hope in our despair as we long for the Lord. My soul can praise the Lord because he is my salvation. That's the hope that we have. And the psalmist talks about this in verses four through six and verses eight and 11. Let's read what those say together. It says in verse four, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Verse five, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Verse eight, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And then verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What I love about what the psalmist does here is he never downplays his despair. In fact, nowhere in scripture does God downplay or scripture downplay our struggles. They're real, excuse me. He talks about this, right? He says, I'm downcast, right? He says, I say these things. I pour my heart out to the Lord, right? Twice he has to ask the question, why are you downcast? Oh, my soul, why is there turmoil within me, right? He is experiencing these hardships. He's not saying that they're not a big deal. He's not acting like that. They're not causing him much pain and suffering. He recognizes that he's in great turmoil. He's in great despair in this, in this situation in exile. But then as he asks the question, he says, in my moment of being downcast, in my moment of turmoil within my soul, what I, can I do here? I can hope in God. Again, I will praise him, my salvation and my God. See, that word hope in the, in the English language is a very weak word, right? It's like wishful thinking. When we're talking to someone and say, we hope something happens, we're just wishful about it, right? Man, I hope the Georgia Bulldogs repeat as national champions, right? I hope the Atlanta Braves can win the World Series again, right? I'm just, I'm hopeful. I'm wishful that these things will happen. It's it's a weak word in the English. But in the Greek and in the Hebrew and the scriptures, it's a very strong word. The word hope means confidence. The word hope means assurance. When the psalmist says he can hope in God, it doesn't mean he has wishful thinking towards God. What he's saying is in my moments of despair, in my moments of turmoil, when I am downcast, when I am overwhelmed, when the waves are crashing in on me, when my enemies are questioning where my God is, when my tears have been my food day and night, in my moment of being overwhelmed, when my moment of defeat is inevitable, in that moment, where does my confidence go? Where does my assurance go? What do I believe in and, and trust in as I long for the presence of God is I hope in my God. I hope in who he is. Again, I will worship him and praise him. Why? Because he is my salvation. He is my God. What the psalmist does in this moment is he clings to the character of God in his moment of despair. That's why he places his confidence in. His confidence is placed in who God is and what God has done. See, what we often do in our moments of despair is we place our, our hope is in our circumstances, is in our situation. 
hoping that this will change, hoping that things will get better. But the reality is, we don't know if they will. And that can be a hard thing for us to grasp. We don't know if life will get easier. We don't know if the questions will be answered. We don't know if God will will decide to lift us from this burden. We don't know if it will happen in this lifetime. But where our eyes can be fixed there is that we can trust in something that doesn't change. We can trust in something that is always consistent. We can trust in the character of God that is same today and yesterday and forevermore, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse eight. That is where we can root our lives in. That is what we can bank on. That's what we can trust in. In our moments of longing, when we thirst for God in his presence, we can bank on who he is and what he's done. He is our God. He is our salvation. And we know this side of the cross, that our salvation was secured through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That you and I can be saved from our sins. All of us who places their faith and trust in Jesus can be saved from their sins because of the work of Jesus. He did everything we could not do through his life, his death, and his resurrection. He has saved it from our sins to be brought into the family of God, to be forgiven of our sins, to walk with us, to live inside of us and give us the strength in this Christian life. We can hope in that. We can rest in that. We don't have to look to the things around us. What we can thirst for is God and his presence and his character. And we can trust because of what Jesus accomplished for us, he will meet us with his presence. That he will meet us with himself and he would then give us the strength to live this Christian life through the power of the Holy Spirit, all because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. That is what our eyes can fix on. You who are downcast in soul, you who have so much turmoil within you, you can hope in God. You can rest in his character and what he's done. He is your salvation. He is your God. And you can long for his presence and know when he will meet you there, all because of the saving work of Jesus. That is what you and I can cling to. And we can thirst for that, trusting that he will meet us because he doesn't change. And I think even the psalmist gives us two things that two practical things that we can do in order to grow in our hope and confidence in who God is and what he's done as we come to him through Jesus Christ. The first thing he talks about, the importance of remembering. He actually mentions this twice. Look what he says, and he always mentions it in his moment of despair. He says in verse four, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. He's pouring out his soul before God, but he said, this is what I remember how it would go with the throng and lead them in progression to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He says, when I, my soul is pouring out to you, I remember what it was like to be in Jerusalem, right? I remember when I used to lead people in worship and praise to you, God, with song and percussion. I remember that my eyes remember, I mean, my mind remembers what my eyes once saw. I remember this, God. I call this to mind as my soul is pouring itself out to you. And then he says it again, when he says down the second half of verse five, he says, my, my soul is cast down within me, right? He once again is experiencing hardships, but what does he do? Therefore, I remember you. What does he remember? I remember you, God. I remember your character. I remember who you are. I can again praise you. He says, from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from the Mount Mazar, Probably what was happening, he was literally standing on a mountain around Jordan. And he could probably even see where Jerusalem was. 
And so in his moment of despair, he looks upon the hills of Jerusalem and he thinks, but I'm going to remember you right now. I'm cast down within me. I'm in exile. But I remember you, God. I remember who you are. And one thing you and I can do in our moments of despair as we long for the Lord is we can remember. We are forgetful people that often forget who God is and what he's done. But you and I can take the time to remember. Remember the goodness of our God. Remember what he did for us in Christ Jesus, saving us, redeeming us, bringing us back into the family of God. Remembering his salvation. Remembering his presence is real in our lives. Remembering that he's a God that doesn't leave us or forsake us. Remembering that he is a God that we are now his children. We can cry out to him, Abba, Father. Remembering who God is is so vital in our moments of despair. Because our God doesn't change, we can fix our eyes on the remembering the things that he's done for us and what it tells us according to scripture. So how can you remember the character and what God has done for you in your life? Maybe you think back on personal ways that God has met you in the past, remembering and when you, you praised him with the song, you remember his presence that was real. Maybe you remember those times, how he showed up for you, his faithfulness being true. Or maybe you just take time to remember the character of God and that he's a God who saves. You remember his mercy and his grace, his forgiveness towards you. Remembering that he now is a God that is with you, present with you because of the work of Christ. What does that look like for you? Maybe it's writing those things down and putting them on your dashboard or in your, the mirror in your bathroom as a reminder, writing verses down, writing situations, maybe talking with loved ones and say, let us remind ourselves of who God is. And in the moments of despair, we can know and trust, have hope because our God doesn't change. And then the second thing the psalmist reminds us of that we can hold to in our moments of despair as we long for the Lord is the steadfast love of the Lord. Look what it says in verse eight. This is the only time in scripture he uses the personal name of God, Yahweh. He says, by day, the Lord, Yahweh, commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He says, I will call to mind the steadfast love of the Lord. I will bring that to mind in my moments of despair. One of the most comforting truths of scripture is that the steadfast love of the Lord. That means that God's love towards you in Christ Jesus isn't up and down based on your circumstances. It's not up and down based on how well you're living your life. It's not up and down based on God's mood. It is consistent. It is steadfast. That The way God loves you is the same today. It will be the same tomorrow. It will be the same in a million years. That his love for you is consistent. But it's important that we recognize and cling to that in our moments of despair because our circumstances often make us think God doesn't love us. Or maybe his love has changed towards us. Even when we are dealing with the consequences of our sin, it is still a loving God who is doing that. Because he's a good God who disciplines his children in the same way that a good father or mother disciplines their earthly children. And we can cling and hold to the steadfast, consistent love of God. Say, my circumstances make me think you're not around. It makes me feel like I'm overwhelmed. It makes me feel like you've forgotten me. But I will remember the steadfast love of the Lord day and night, the psalmist says. And one of the greatest passages about the steadfast love of the Lord is found in Lamentations chapter 3. Most of us know this. It's an amazing two verses. What a lot of us don't know is what lamentation is about, right? It's a book of lamenting, hence the name Lamentations. 
And just verses before he writes this, the writer of Lamentation is in so much despair that he says, it feels like my teeth are grinding on the gravel road. He's in moments of despair, but what does he do? He calls this to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God. The steadfast love, it never ceases. It never stops. He loves you consistently, right? His mercies, his forgiving grace is new every single morning. That he's a God that forgives over and over again. That he's a God that that is consistently loving you. He strengthens you. He satisfies you. He meets you with his goodness and his grace. That we can rest in the steadfast love of the Lord. It never ceases. Never comes to an end. Great is the faithfulness of our God. And so remind yourself of the steadfast love of the Lord as you long for him. As you thirst for him, he will meet you with that love. And the greatest thing that you can remember as you think about it is don't forget the cross of Christ. The greatest display of God's steadfast love. That he loved us enough to save us and to redeem us. Just bring us into a relationship with him. And he will meet us and care for us and nurture us in our moments of weakness as we long for him. Remember the steadfast love of the Lord towards you, beloved, never ceases. It never, his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Cling to that. Believe that in your moment of hardships and despair. So there's great, great hope for us as we posture our lives and our hearts to receive the quenching, satisfying presence of God. Use your life and your hardship as an opportunity to run to him. He's good and he is gracious. You will not be disappointed. He will meet you with all that your soul needs and longs for. And as we end, as we do every service, we end with communion. As another opportunity for us to remember, right, what God has done. Then on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a piece of bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. He took a piece of wine and said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me, right? Don't forget, always remember, forgetful people, what I have accomplished. And as we gather for communion, yes, it is a form of worship, but it's also a time to remember. To remember the links that God did to bring you his presence. Remind you of the character of God that doesn't change. To remind you that you can come to him, run to him, when you're overwhelmed into despair, he desires to quench that thirst because you can have hope and confidence in what, who he is and what he's done. So as you come this morning, be reminded of that. Take a piece of bread, dip it into the juice. Um, you have, we have cups up here for those who want prepackaged ones. We have two tables in the front, two in the back. And come and remember what God has done for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be reminded of that. But also what it does, it only doesn't remind us of what happened in the past, but it reminds us of the future as well. Jesus says with his disciples, when I won't do this again, so I do this in my kingdom with you. What he's talking about is after he returns one day, there's gonna be something called the marriage supper of the lamb. And it's gonna be the greatest feast that you and I have ever had with all believers from all of time and with God himself. And this is a reminder of one day, all those who eat of this who are in Christ Jesus will feast with the Lord again. And in that moment, there'll be no more despair, no more hardships, no more overwhelmingness. You won't have to thirst for the Lord because he will be with you. Your thirst will be met immediately in the presence of God. No more pain, no more sin, no more hardships.
And as we eat today, let us be reminded of what awaits us for those who are in Christ Jesus. All because of what he did for us on the cross. All because of what this meal represents. And so as you come today, reflect on what he's done. Remember what he's going to do. And in the middle time now, know that he desires to meet you with his presence as you thirst and long for him. I'm going to close with uh, some lyrics from Sojourn Music, one of my favorite songs called New Again. He says, We're blinded by trials, our lives marked with pain. Shadows surround us, but there is hope today. When sorrow runs deep and the night is long, may we find peace in the Savior's song. Death is defeated and Jesus reigns. Tell the world there is hope in his name. He pushed back the darkness. He conquered our sin. And Christ will make all things new again. You can rest in that, beloved. So the tables are open. Come whenever you're ready.